Hello and welcome to Afternoonified. This year's hottest episode is this one. It's got everything. Fairies, sea humans, petrified Bible men, a board tied to some rope. I'm Emily. I'm Sarah. And if that's not your scene, we've got some sexy woodcuts you can take off our hands. That's quite a list. It's uh, this is going to be a wild episode, Emily. I'm very excited. Uh, yes, it sounds like a wild episode full of lies. That's generally, yes, we're talking hoaxes today. And if you don't know what a hoax is, the etymology of hoax is, it's a lie. Yeah, it's an old-timey word for lying. I didn't, honestly, yeah, I didn't go into any of the history because Webster's whatever. Dictionary defines hoax. <laughs> Webster's Dictionary defines hoax as, we're just going to talk about some cool hoaxes. Uh, but first, this is oh, me God. doing a gem roll. Oh, wow. Um, our 100th episode is coming in January. Yeah, that's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, that's that might be a hoax. <laughs> so to celebrate, I don't, this will be interesting to see what this episode turns into because we actually haven't started writing it yet. But I think our thing is we want to learn 100 things. Yeah, it's 100 facts for 100 episodes. Yeah, so we're going to look up some cool facts. We're going to get some facts from our friends of the pod uh we also want to hear your fun facts and weird events and totally useless trivia that's taking up space in your head the stuff that you tell people at parties and they just nod politely and stop talking to you (laughs) yeah all the weird facts that you don't know what to do with um so we would love if you guys our beloved listeners would help us celebrate by recording a voice memo on your phone or you can write it in an email we'll read it too um, but send it to afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com. Uh, just put like 100th episode or something in the subject line. We don't get that many emails. I think we'll, we'll find, find it. But <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm trying to like act like a grown-up podcast, okay? <laughs> yes. Put 100th episode in the title just so we can keep track of them. Yeah. You've got a while. You've got till like January 13th. So start thinking about what you'd like to teach us. And also think of it as a birthday present for me. <laughs> Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's coming out like right before your birthday. Yes, the birthday we do not speak of except right now when we're speaking of. That's right. You're 30th. Mm-hmm. You're going to be a grown up. Yeah, I'm not in my late 20s anymore. <laughs> you might say right now I'm in my advanced late 20s. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, but yeah, so what? any kind of fact, like we clearly don't have standards. Yeah, and it doesn't even like it can be like a couple of sentences if you got to explain something ahead of time. We'll figure it out as we go along. But send us anything fun that you think we should know and that you think other people would find interesting. Help us do our job. (laughs) Do this episode for us so we can take a break. Because we've done 99 of these. Um, Well, Emily's done 99 of these. I've done slightly less, but... uh, Yeah, and uh, this is also... We have one more episode after this, but we are taking our winter hiatus. Um, Right. I say winter. It's really just for the holidays. And mostly January. It's like a J term <laughs> for the podcast. You take one class that you really want to learn fast. <laughs> you know what I took for both of my J terms? I didn't have those, so. Uh, uh, I took math both times. Sarah. And I've never gotten worse grades in my life. Because you took math. To be fair, the second time I took a math course, it was because... Um, when I was registering for classes, I was not paying attention, I guess, or was stupid. And then, like, I realized I was going to have an 8 a.m. statistics class. I was like, you know, no thanks. <laughs> so I dropped it and did J-term instead. And still did badly, but at least I didn't have to get up at 8, eight in the morning. I took two math classes in my entire time at art school. Didn't do well in them, but I'm I did well enough. I'm surprised you had to take any math classes in art school. Um, you have to reach a certain level of, of math to graduate. I think that, and then I took a chemistry class online, which highly recommend. Why not? Uh, but then I got to my last term and I had like, you know, normal classes and then I needed one cultural class. (laughs) And, uh, the only one available that fit with my schedule was Japanese cultural history. And like Japanese culture is very interesting. This class was not. It's upsetting. I've never made up so many papers in my life. 
Anyway, hoaxes. Speaking of doing lies. <laughs> doing lies. You know what was a hoax my entire semester in Ireland? Uh, so um, I will call out specific sources um, as we go, but I got a lot of this from Museum of Hoaxes, which is a website that is awesome. Is that I, also a physical place that I can visit in the aftertimes? I don't think so. I think it's just a website, but it's very interesting and they have it all like by year. It's very good. I got a lot of great information there. Go visit it if you think this is like interesting. They have <laughs> so many more hoaxes than I can cover in this episode. Um, I also got a lot from various articles in Smithsonian Mag, Live Science, Wikipedia, of course, and again, additional sites. Sources will be cited as necessary. Yeah, we don't want to give away the farm by citing our sources now. No, God forbid. I mean, it's like two of them, but anyway. <laughs> so, our first famous hoax, the Fiji Mermaid. Oh, I've I don't think I've seen this in person, but I've definitely seen a recreation of it. Yeah, it's oofa doofa. Okay, so we're, <laughs> we'll talk about it. <laughs> so the Fiji Mermaid was a hugely popular exhibition promoted by famed American showman P.T. Varnum, played by Hugh Jackman, uh, throughout the 19, for, 1840s. For, for the purpose of this historical podcast, he will be played by Hugh Jackman. I'm sure in real life he was exactly as attractive as Hugh Jackman. No, he made some sort of deal with the devil to get <laughs> Hugh Jackman to play him in the future movie. He looks like a gnome. <laughs> so as the story goes, the Fiji mermaid arrived in New York City in July of 1842 in the care of an English naturalist cultured, called Dr. J. Griffin, uh, who I imagine will be played by Griffin McElroy. I had a mouthful of tea, you absolute dick. <laughs> so Dr. Griffin was said to be a member of the British Lyceum of Natural History. Uh, and the press had been anticipating Dr. Griffin's arrival as correspondents had been sending them letters hyping up his latest find, which is apparently the specimen of a real, actual mermaid supposedly caught near the Fiji Islands in the South Pacific. Hence the name Fiji Mermaid. Reporters were actually waiting for him when he checked into his hotel, and after demanding to see the mermaid, Dr. Griffin reluctantly obliged. Very reluctantly, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> so, the reporters apparently left the hotel entirely convinced of the specimen's authenticity. Uh, and soon after that, P.T. Barnum started going around to the offices of all the major newspapers, and he offered to give them some use, the use of some woodcuts he had made of a beautiful, bare-breasted mermaid. <sighs> so, as Barnum told it to the papers... He had been trying to talk Dr. Griffin into displaying the mermaid at his museum, but the naturalist didn't want to. So he's got all these woodcuts, and what's he going to do with them now? They're useless, so you just have them. You can use these. Here's some tits. Let me <laughs> display your mermaid. Here's some mermaid tits you can print in your paper. <laughs> so the newspapers, each thinking they had an exclusive, were like, yeah, free wood, free sexy woodcuts? Let me <laughs> at them. Uh, so on Sunday, July 17th, the woodcuts appeared in newspapers across the city. In demand to see the Fiji mermaid grew and grew. And finally, Dr. Griffin was just <laughs> convinced. She's like, oh, okay, you got me. I'll exhibit it for a week at Concert Hall on Broadway. Oh, wow. That mermaid went to Broadway. <laughs> the exhibit drew huge crowds because it's the 1840s. And who doesn't want to see the preserved corpse of a fish woman with her tits out? Uh, no one. No one doesn't want to see that. Dr. Griffin was there, of course, uh, to lend authenticity to the exhibit and to share his theories on natural history. Hey, remember back in the day when you could just, like, tell people shit? <laughs> You'll like this. So... His theory was, like, of course mermaids are going to be real. And yeah. he points out, everything on land has a counterpart in the ocean. We have sea lions and sea horses and sea dogs. So obviously there are sea humans as well. I would love to see a sea panda, Sarah. A sea raccoon. Oh. Uh, well, anyway, the actual mermaids on, dis or, sorry, mermaids singular, just one mermaid didn't quite live up to the sexy sirens advertised in Barnum's woodcuts. Yeah, no, I've seen this thing. It um, it looks like what it is. It's, okay, so what the Fiji mermaid is, it's the withered body of a monkey uh, sewed onto the dried tail of a fish. And it's very small. It's, yeah, it's probably like two, three feet. Uh, it's described by a correspondent from the Charleston Courier as the very incarnation of ugliness. Yeah, and um, I don't know if anyone told Dr. Griffin this, but the mermaids of old... Or manatees. Yes. That's what mermaids were in the old days. That's what they were saying. <laughs> uh, the original mermaid had fish scales with animal hair. Kind of, I, the word I got was superimposed. I imagine it was like glued. 
Um, according to Wikipedia, it had pendulous breasts on its chest. See, this is Direct one of the quote. reasons I don't like monkeys, is they're too human, and that freaks me out. We, we've recently we've talked, talked about this. We've talked about this. <laughs> I've watched a couple more documentaries where monkeys were heavily featured, and I just, I can't. Uh, in his autobiography, Barnum himself described the mermaid as an ugly, dried-up, black-looking, diminutive specimen. Its arms thrown up, giving the appearance of having died in great agony. Why don't they just call it a sea monkey? Like, that's still bananas. <laughs> that's a thing already. Well, yeah, they didn't know about sea monkeys back then. Uh, right? <laughs> I have no idea, honestly. Uh, the But the mermaid was, of course, completely fake. Uh, Barnum had leased the mermaid from another showman named Moses Kimball, and the original is believed to have been created by a Japanese fisherman somewhere around 1810. Moses Kimball, the second greatest showman, played, <laughs> the by, other Ryan, great. played by Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> The slightly less great showman. <laughs> um, so according to the Museum of Hoaxes, the Fiji mermaid is an example of a traditional art form perfected by fishermen in Japan um, and in the East Indies. But they would construct foam mermaids by stitching the upper bodies of monkeys and apes to the bodies of fish, often for use in religious ceremonies. They did not elaborate. They did not touch on this in my Japanese cultural history <laughs> class. I can't imagine why not. I would have paid more attention. Uh, the alternate explanation I got in Wikipedia was that the Japanese fishermen just did it as a joke, which well, I also find believable. Like, yeah, yeah, let's, you know, fuck with the white guys. I don't know. <laughs> uh, the Fiji mermaid specifically is believed to have been the combination of an orangutan and a salmon. I hate all of that. <laughs> uh, it will come as no surprise, I'm sure, that Dr. Griffin was also a fraud. There was no such thing as the British Lyceum of Natural History. And in fact, his real name was Levi Lyman. Lyman. Lime, Lyman, like Josh from the West Wing. <laughs> I was thinking Lyman, but oh. sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that too. I just associate Lyman But like Josh from things, the West obviously. Wing. <laughs> uh, he was, of course, an accomplice of Barnum's. Everything about the introduction, like the woodcuts to the letters that had been sent to the papers, like all of this that. This was all been... for fucking show? It was all very carefully orchestrated by P.T. Barnum. He really is the greatest showman. He really is. And that's why Hugh Jackman gets to play him. I should get, I should see this movie. Like, I've never seen it. I've heard, I've got the impression we either very much love or very much hate the greatest showman. Is this the bit they did on Mibim Bam? I don't know. I don't remember. I remember. I feel like there was something. But anyway. <laughs> god damn it pt barnum uh, P it was pt barnum just being pt barnum <laughs> uh so after the initial exhibition the mermaid split its time between barnum's museum in new york and kimball's museum in boston with brief tours of london and the southern united states so it's not actually sure what happened to it after like 1859 i think is the last time it went out on tour uh, both Barnum and Kimball's museums burned down at some point. So it's more than likely it was destroyed in one of those fires. Yeah, I saw a recreation so. of it at uh, Ripley's. Yeah, I'll put like a woodcut picture up on um, Instagram. and the, Make sure to Google. censor the titties. No, I will not. <laughs> oh, if you free that monkey nipple. <laughs> uh, yeah, you Google Fiji Mermaid, you can see many examples of what this like other... Because it isn't the only one in existence. Like, there are other people have sewed fish bodies in onto monkey. It, it's awful. It's yeah. just terrible. Wow, I hate this. Are you looking? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, they're all clearly monkeys. Yeah, very, very obviously. <laughs> but, you know, it's the 1840s and people are dumb. The yeah. internet hasn't been invented yet. They're naive. <laughs> um, there's, oh, oh wow. A Fiji mermaid horror film set in Coney Island seeks backers. Ten years ago, so I assume oh. that didn't get funding. I was going to say, link me to that GoFundMe, because I will contribute. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah, this is horrifying and clearly monkeys, so. Yep. So go Google that. Have fun. Enjoy. Uh, the next hoax we're going to talk about is the Cardiff Giant. This sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, you probably heard it. It's one of the more famous ones. Uh, so the last half of the 19th century um, has was been was described in a lot of my research as the golden age of hoaxes. Yeah, because uh, people were naive and because people were just just dumb. <laughs> One of the most famous is that of the Cardiff Giant, which is which was a 10 foot tall stone man uncovered on a farm in Cardiff, New York, in October of 1969. Uh, yep, yep, that one. Yep. So word of the find spread quickly and soon people began to speculate like what could this be? Is it like a statue or is it an actual petrified man? Proponents of the latter theory had the evidence to back it up. And that evidence was 
the Bible. No. Specifically, Genesis 6, chapter 6, verse 4, where it says, There were giants on the earth in those days, which you may remember from our episode on the Nephilim. And we all know the Nephilim were Bigfoot. Anyway. <laughs> now, the, the Bigfoots are a breed of Chinese monkey that have learned to walk upright. <laughs> yes. One of those. It's always monkeys and owls. <laughs> The farmer who owned the land, William Newell, knew a cash cow when he saw one and soon began charging people 50 cents a head to come view the Cardiff man and, you know, draw their own conclusions over what it was. Was he real? Was it fake? Who knows? Come look. Find out yourself. I mean, to be (laughs) fair, there wasn't a lot to do back then. And even if I knew that it was not real, I'd probably still go take a peek. There's a big giant someone did a thing? Sure. Yeah. Look. Uh, The giant, of course, did not hold up to scrutiny after being sold to a group of businessmen who paid something like $37,500 for it, which is like $700,000 today. Um, So they bought it to exhibit it in Syracuse. um, And a paleontologist from Yale came down and declared it a very clumsy fake. Like, there were still obvious chisel marks. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's just his natural skin texture. (laughs) And regardless of, like... If it was supposed to be even a statue, like if it had been in the ground for any real length of time, those marks would have been worn away. So, uh, yeah. The real story came out that the Cardiff man was actually the creation of a man named George Hall, who was an avowed atheist who wanted to prove a point. Oh, God, the worst kind of atheist. (laughs) So after getting in an argument with a Methodist reverend over that verse in Genesis and whether the Bible should in fact be taken literally, Hall decided to make the statue, pass it off as a petrified man, both so he could poke fun at biblical literas, but also get that paper. Again, <laughs> so, the worst kind of atheist. He hired men to quarry a 10-foot block of gypsum near Fort Dodge, Iowa, claiming that he was going to use it as a monument to Abraham Lincoln. Uh, we he have then sh- one already. Thank you. <laughs> Not in 1869. Really? When did the Lincoln Memorial come up? Uh, I don't know, but probably not that soon. Lincoln only died in like 1860-something. Hold on. We're going to fact check in... <laughs> Real time fact check. I don't. Let's not have fact check music. No. Um. Lincoln Memorial. The, the designer of the memorial's interior large central statue. 1920. See. Well, I mean, I wasn't around. <laughs> it takes like five more than five years for it was uh, big old statues. I guess it was uh, the architect of the structure was Henry Bacon, and the sculptor was Daniel Chester French. Those sound like the names of men in the 1920s. Don't they, though? (laughs) Anyway. So (laughs) Hall, he shipped the block to Chicago, and there he hired a stonecutter to carve it into the likeness of a man. Uh, And then they, like, added stains and acids. They were trying to make it look old and weathered, like, and they, they, like, put sewing or knitting needles, like, steel knitting needles in boards and just, like, hit it with the boards to try and make it look like he had pores. Here's the thing. I have worked in art department's aging stuff. It's all about the details. So, like, making sure there are no chisel marks should have been, like, day one. Day one, yeah. But, I mean, they apparently didn't try that hard. (laughs) I mean, it took, like, a week. Anyway, uh, the stone giant was then transported by rail to the farm of Hall's cousin, William Newell, the original farmer. And he buried it behind his barn and a year later hired two workmen to uh, dig a well. When it was just like, go dig over there behind the barn. And then it was so surprised when they found something. Um, altogether, the entire venture cost Hall about $2,500 or about $50,000 today, which actually is kind of That's ridiculous. a lot of money to stick it to the Christians. That's a lot of dough. But, I mean, he he made his money back. Uh, yeah, a real, you know, 1800s Ricky Gervais out there. <laughs> Uh, so even after it had been exposed as a hoax, people kept coming to see the giant anyway, and they even started referring to it affectionately as old hoaxy, <laughs> which is my favorite detail in this whole story. I was going on, like, am I going to do Cardiff Man or Piltdown Man? And then I read this and I got to old hoaxy and I was like, this guy. So what you're implying is there were multiple stories where someone would, like, made a fake dude and buried it. I think Piltdown Man was more like Missing Link kind of Minnesota Iceman type of flavor. Ah, I didn't okay. go that far into it because I read this one first and decided to do it. But yeah, very similarly where you try and fake a thing and then bury it and then of course excavate the, it. You know. The old hoaxy man. I don't know. <laughs> the old hoaxy hoax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give him the old hoaxy hoax. 
So P.T. Barnum, of course, tried to buy the Cardiff Man. Uh, when his offer was refused, he paid an artist to build an exact plaster replica of it, and he put that on display instead. To be fair, the original was also plaster. Yeah, uh, no, there was actual stone. Yeah, but you said gypsum, which I'm pretty sure is just... I mean, that's a rock. It's not, like, plaster. But... Isn't that what they make the plaster out of, though? No, gypsum is, like... Gypsum is a soft sulfate mineral composed of calcium sulfate, whatever. If you go look at it, it's a rock. Um... I mean, it's probably it is a pretty widely soft mined and used as fertilizer and as the main constituent in many forms of plaster, blackboard, sidewalk chalk, and drywall. Okay, never mind then. I know a lot about masonry, thing. Sarah. I don't know my rocks as well as you, Emily. I'm sorry. <laughs> the replica remains on display today in Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum in Detroit. The original is at the Farmers Museum in Cooperstown, New York. So, well, I think we the, need to make a trip to Detroit. I yeah, that museum sounds interesting. I'd go there. Okay, next hoax, the Cottingley Fairies. Uh, additional sources for this one are an article by Joe Cooper called Cottingley, colon, at last, the truth. I mean, I don't think we had to wait very long for the tr- Well, anyway, if you have <laughs> eyes, you kind of know what's up. If you have eyes and aren't an old-timey person. <laughs> Look, I think the takeaway of this episode is people in old-timey days were very stupid. People nowadays are still very stupid. Well, I mean, it's one of my dearest wishes to go back to when, like, Psycho was first in theaters and, like, watch people's reactions to it because, like, it was new. Te- like, it was new. Like, no one had ever mm-hmm. seen anything like that before. It, it blew their goddamn minds. Well, similarly, The Cottingly Fairies is a series of photographs taken by two cousins, Francis Griffith, Francis Griffiths and Elsie Wright between 1917 and 1920. So Frances, who was about 10 years old, she had moved to England to stay with her rights while her father fought in World War I. And she and her elder cousin, Elsie, who was about like 16, they would often play together in and around the stream that ran through the garden of the Wright's Cottingley Village home. So after frequent admonishments from their mothers from coming home with like wet feet and clothes, the girls claimed that they only went to the stream to see the fairies. And to prove it, they asked Elsie's father, Arthur, who was an amateur photographer, to borrow his camera. I cannot wait to see where this goes. They returned just like an hour later, totally triumphant, in that evening when Arthur Wright developed the plate. He found a photo of his niece Frances surrounded by what appeared to be dancing fairies. Okay, so you're probably already Googling, and I'm just going to say it. If you look at the photos today, it is immediately apparent that these are paper cutouts of hand-drawn fairies. And to Arthur's credit... That's what he assumed. (laughs) He even asked his daughter why there appeared to be bits of paper in the photo. He wrote the whole thing off as a joke. He never, it doesn't, I don't get the impression he ever believed they were actual fairies. I don't see how, well, keep going. (laughs) We'll get to it. So a month later in August uh, 1917, the girls produced another photograph, this time of Elsie with a leaping gnome. Again, Arthur developed the plate. Again, he assumed it was a trick. After this, he stopped letting the girls borrow his camera. (laughs) I imagine it's, like, expensive to do this. and yeah. I mean, they're cool in, like, a 1920s way, but... I really like them. I think aesthetically they're very cool. I mean, they're obviously fake, but they're very cool. I like them. for Especially for, like, two teenage girls just kind of messing around with a camera in their backyard. Very nice. Oh, for sure. So while Arthur, while Arthur was skeptical, their wife Polly, or his wife Polly, not... She was interested in the occult and claimed to have experiences of astral projection. So these are the people. She was probably just hitting the opium a little too hard. (laughs) She had believed the photos were authentic. And in 1919, after attending a Theosophical Society lecture on, quote, fairy life, she showed the two photos to the speaker. The speaker then brought the photos to the attention of Edward Gardner, who was a leader in the Theosophical movement. And he, in turn, asked a photographer called Harold Snelling to examine them. So this was all because of spiritualism. Yeah. Okay. These people wanted to believe it. Uh, Snelling, of course, declared the photos genuine, unfaked photographs of single exposure and Jesus deemed Christ. them authentic. The image soon, images soon began to circulate through the British spiritualist community, even coming to the attention of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Oh, yeah. He was really into that stuff. Yes. Uh, if you don't know who Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is, he wrote Sherlock Holmes. The, it's a big it's the book version of that thing that Benedict Cumberbatch was in. <laughs> yeah. Back in these days, we had books and then they got. <laughs> so we had books. <laughs> uh, Conan Doyle published the photographs as part of an article on fairies that he was writing for a magazine called The Strand. He was Doyle was very into spiritualism. He was super into these photographs, which blows my mind because Sherlock is entirely based on like 
Offense Razor. Yeah. He's, yeah. It's honestly like, I get it. I don't understand it, but also like, I get it. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it any better than that. Just a, a real molder out there. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he believed them to be conclusive photographic proof of the existence of supernatural beings. So he and Gardner began to seek out some other expert opinions with mixed results. Like they sent them to Kodak and Kodak, they like agreed these show no signs of being faked, but they wouldn't go far as to say like these are actual photographs of fairies. They're very they're not, uh, flat. Yeah. And then, like that's the thing. There's no like photographic trickery involved. Like there's no double exposure or anything like that happening. They are just like straight oops, photographs. Well, it's like it's very easy to folk it folk. To fake a UFO thing by, like, tying a button to a piece of fishing line and, like, waving it around in front of the camera. Yeah. Are you, like, mess with perception? Like, there was none of that. Like, you weren't messing with the original plates. None of that was going on. Like, the actual fairies were in the picture. The problem was the fairies were cut. Were paper cutouts. Yeah, very clearly paper cutouts. Anyway, uh, Doyle and Gardner weren't ready to admit that they'd been duped. Uh, so in the summer of 1920, he sent Gardner to Cottingley with two new cameras and 24 secretly marked photographic plates. So Francis was about 13 and Elsie was 19. Uh, they insisted the fairies wouldn't show themselves if others were watching. This is a 19-year-old woman. Like, back in that time, she is a whole-ass adult and she's still doing this. Uh, big red flag, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when left to their own devices, they did take three more photographs. Uh, The third depicts Frances in a single fairy. She's kind of like caught mid-leap. The fourth is Elsie, and she's being offered a flower by a fairy with a very cute flapper bob. You know, like fairies did. They followed the trends. Yep. Uh, In in the fifth and final photograph, neither Elsie or Frances are present. Instead, the photo features like two fairies and what appears to be some kind of sheath or cocoon, as it's it's called. It's described by so-called fairy experts as a magnetic bath, which is a thing, I guess. Is it... No, Emily, it's not. This isn't, none of this is real. <laughs> uh, so there were, of course, plenty of skeptics who pointed out the obvious problems with the photos. Like, these are clearly po- bits of paper. Like, the eye line, the girls aren't ever looking at the fairies. The fairies all worn modern fashions and Parisian hairstyles. Like They could be vacationing. <laughs> uh, that didn't stop people from believing they were genuine, which might have been more about the timing, people think, than simply, like, People in old-timey days didn't understand photography. I mean, they didn't. But, like, also, like, the First World War was real tough on the British. And believing in something. Yeah. Believing in fairies kind of reinforced this idea. There's still some goodness and innocence in the world. So if you want to believe it, you're going to believe it. Uh, Gardner visited again in 1921, this time with a self-described medium named Jeffrey Jeffrey Hodson. But by then, Elsie and Francis were kind of bored <laughs> with the whole fairy thing. Yeah. Because they were adults and had moved on, clearly. Uh, later admitted they only played along with Hodson in that he, um, Hodson's assertion that he too could totally see the fairies. <laughs> They're like, no, you can't. But they pretended they would. My God. Just to mess with him. I like these girls, honestly. They sound cool. <laughs> <laughs> Elsie and Francis, you know, they both eventually, like, they got married. They moved abroad for a while um, in 1966. To other people, right? To other people. They were okay. cousins. Also, it's the 60s, and that does Just checking. Not allowed yet. <laughs> uh, in 1966, a reporter from the Daily Express tracked Elsie down, and by then she had changed her story. She admitted the fairies had only been figments of her imagination, but she did float the idea that maybe she had somehow managed to photograph her thoughts. Which actually, is not... I, think I wrote Elsie. I think it was actually Francis, but... Yeah, the it, that's one. not an unheard of phenomenon either. Yeah. In 1978, famed skeptic James Randi pointed out uh, that the fairies in the photos were very similar to sketches in a children's book called Princess Mary's Gift Book, which had been published in 1915, so it would have been around. So here's the thing. He was probably right, but I'm not going to listen to anyone named James Randi, who is a noted skeptic. (laughs) R-A-N-D-I. I don't know if that makes it better or worse, but... No! Uh, so finally, in 1981, in 1982, both Elsie and Francis sat, sat for separate interviews with a journalist called Joe Cooper. Both copped, finally, to faking the fairy photos as a way to just prank the grown-ups in their household. Because the grown-ups didn't believe the fairies are real, so stick it to them by taking pictures, I guess. <laughs> so together, the girls copied the illustrations in the book, the aforementioned book, the Princess Mary's gift book. They cut the figures out using tailor's scissors and then secured them to the ground with the use of hat pins. Um, you can even see a hat pin in the photo of Elsie and the gnome. 
Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle explained this away <laughs> by claiming, oh, that's his belly button. Sir, you are a grown man. Thereby deducing that no. fairy birth was likely very similar to human birth. No, I'm pretty sure that they lay eggs. Uh, once they were finished, they dropped the cutout figures in the brook, leaving no evidence besides the photos themselves, which still are clearly pictures of the girls posing with paper cutouts. And they should have kept them in case they needed to, like, use them again. Yeah, you think, like, the? Uh, I guess you probably couldn't, though, because, like, oh, this fairy shows up in multiple photographs in the exact same pose, wearing the exact same clothes. Okay, yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the photos have been, like, printed and circulated among their friends for a while, and neither girl really admitted to the truth because it was more fun to keep people guessing. Also, you reach a point in a lie where you can't really get out of the lie anymore. Yes, and that point was when they attracted the attention of Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> so, like, at that point, they're too ad- embarrassed to admit the truth. I've been uh, there. Maybe not Arthur Conan Doyle believing my bullshit been there, but I've been there. Yeah, we've all been there. And honestly, like, they were even, like, blown away at the idea that anyone could have been fooled by their photos at all. <laughs> like, they were like, what the fuck? So in an 18, or 1985 interview, Francis said, I never even thought of it as being a fraud. It was just Elsie and I having a bit of fun, and I can't understand to this day why they were taken in. They wanted to be taken in. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, it reminds me of Jeff the Mongo- Mongoose, who is definitely 100% totally real and not... A little girl in her family who, like, had a goof and then people took it too seriously. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that sounds about right. Oh, Jeff. <laughs> uh, so the only remaining point of contention is that fifth photo of the fairies and their sunbath or whatever it is. Both women claim to be the photographer and it seems likely that it is on some level a double exposure. So they're probably right. Like, accidentally, they both snapped a photo and it turned into that. Um, while Elsie readily admits that the fifth photo was a fake Frances maintained the photo was genuine until her death in 1986. Is Frances the younger one? Yeah. Okay. And both women always insisted that while the photos had been a hoax, they really had seen fairies accordingly. They saw big dragonflies. Probably. Adding big (laughs) dragonflies to our list of things that always is. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's definitely just a lie that got out of hand. It's usually how it goes when children are involved. Well, one of them was not a child, but... (laughs) Well, no, she was 16-ish. I guess. When when it first started. Yeah, she was a whole ass adult at the end. <laughs> All right. Our next one is the surgeon's photo. Oh, I don't like how that... No, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> you'll you'll be fine. Uh, my additional source for this is PBS Nova Online, which had a very comprehensive article. Uh, the, surgeon's, ugh, the surgeon's photo is the most famous photo of the Loch Ness Monster. You've oh, seen okay. it. Uh, it is, of course, a big old fake. What? Yo, Nessie's real. No, the photo is... The photo's fake, Nessie is real. Yeah, the photo is fake. I am not going to draw a line on Nessie. We're not going to get into it. I want Nessie to be real. We all do. this photo is super fake. Okay. (laughs) So you have almost definitely seen this photo before. It's the black and white photo that shows like the sea creature with the small head and the elongated neck rising from the waters of Scotland's Loch Ness. Technically, it's a lake monster. Yes. (laughs) A lock monster, if a you will. A lock monster, if you will, yeah. It was first published in 1934 by English tabloid The Daily Mail, first red flag, <laughs> uh, who purchased the photo from a London physician named R. Kenneth Wilson. Was he a real doctor or was he a griffin doctor? <laughs> he was actually a real doctor and also like a former army colonel, something like that. He claimed to have shot the photograph early in the morning of April 19th, 1934, while driving along the northern shore of the lock. Having noticed a commotion in the water, he stopped his car to snap a photo. Sure. Like you do. Like I said, he was a formal cur- former colonel, a highly respected surgeon. So, and it's kind of because his status of his status that many found the picture to be so credible. Like, why would this doctor stake his reputation on whatever? I guess. Such as. And also, like, doctors never lie. Ever. A doctor has never, ever, ever lied. Never once. So everyone kind of took it at face value until... 1984. Oh my god. When the photo was finally analyzed for an article in the British Journal of Photography. The Took an- them that long? <laughs> the that analysis long. concluded, yeah. The analysis concluded that the, uh, that the object in the water could have only been two or three feet long. At most. It suggested maybe it was like an otter or a bird. I mean, Nessie doesn't have to be big. Not necessarily. Uh, the photo, as most people have seen it, is usually cropped down to show just the monster. So, like, the ripples in the water look like waves. And- There's no context. Yeah. Uh, the original uncropped version of the photo shows the monster from much farther away. Like, the opposite shore of the lock is visible. Nessie looks real small. 
So the Museum of Hoaxes has like both the cropped and uncropped versions. I would recommend like going to the website and looking at it because like you see the uncropped version. It's very clearly like a little itty bitty Nessie. It looks like a goose. Yeah. Uh, So in 1994, 60 years after the photo was taken, a man named Christian Sperling, who was about 90 years old by then, confessed that the surgeon's photo was in fact a hoax and that the plot had been hatched by his stepfather. This is the name Marmaduke Weatherall. That is a good name. As well as the titular surgeon himself. So Weatherall. (laughs) Titular. Sorry. (laughs) Weatherall had apparently approached Sperling, asked him to make a convincing model of a sea serpent, which he did by grafting like a plastic wood neck to a toy submarine. They staged the photograph, took it, and then they persuaded Dr. Wilson to have the photo developed and sell it to the Daily Mail as his own. The apparent motive was like payback. So the year before, Weatherall had been humiliated because he found like Loch Ness tracks along the shore of the loch, uh, which were immediately debunked by the Natural History Museum, who identified them as being made from a dried hippo's foot, which is a thing he would have had access to because apparently at the time these were really popular as umbrella stands. God, I hated people. God damn it. Yeah. The the line in my note is, okay, sure, fine, 1930s. God damn it. <laughs> uh, so the quote his son later recalled him saying was, we'll give them their monster. And I imagine he's shaking his fist. So he lied. He got caught. He got mad. And so he lied again. Yes. Are, to his credit, it worked. Was everybody in the 1930s in England and like just children like actual babies well they're all men we're talking about so yeah Yeah. our next hoax we're going to talk about crop circles no sarah don't take this from me (laughs) i hate to break it to y'all crop circles are a hoax not all crop circles Mm, probably all all crop circles uh so i have additional sources for this they are a jstor article called crop circles are a hoax (laughs) and how stuff works Uh, So crop circles, if you didn't grow up watching Unsolved Mysteries in the 90s, were areas and fields where the crops, like usually corn, barley, wheat, whatever, had been flattened into circular geometric patterns. The patterns would appear overnight and with no apparent cause. So obviously the popular explanation was aliens. Well, obviously. I mean, what else would it be? It's aliens. Uh, There's a few scattered early reports about crop circles. The most notable is in 1966. Um, near the small town of Tully, Australia, where a farmer said he saw a flying saucer rise up from a swampy area and fly away. Uh, on further investigation, he found a roughly circular area of debris and flattened grass, which he had assumed been made by the spacecraft. Uh, police investigators said it was probably caused by, you know, weather, like a dust devil or a water spout, which are things. Um. Uh, regardless of the official explanation, the press dubbed it a flying saucer nest. A flying saucer nest? That that was what they called it. Like the big flying saucer has to go away and bring back like food for the baby flying yeah. saucers? And then it pukes up the food right into the baby saucer's mouth. Well, that's something I didn't want to picture. <laughs> uh, so modern crop circles, like as we know them, didn't actually start appearing until the late 1970s. So the first were just simple circles. The number and complexity increased dramatically throughout the 80s and the 90s. Most were in the UK, kind of even like typically in the southern half of the UK. Um, Others would later appear in parts of the US, Japan, and kind of a handful of other countries. But those are kind of the big hotspots, I guess. Are you telling me the movie Signs wasn't based on a true story? No, that was based on the alien invasion of 2001. You didn't, you you missed that? Were you too young? I don't think I've actually seen Signs all the way through. (laughs) When did Signs even come out? Was that like 2003? Oh, 2004? It was sometime between uh, the I was in high school. Sixth I think. Sense and uh, Lady in the Water. I think it was in the old time. That was like a decade ago. Let's not even think about it. It's before Mel Brooks was openly a piece of shit. You mean uh, Mel? Uh, what's his face? Mel, not Bro- Mel Brooks. Oh God, I'm so sorry to Mel Brooks. Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson. Mel yes, Gibson's thank a piece you. Of- Mel Brooks is a treasure. Um, a 2002. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that sounds about right. So yeah. Uh, in 1991, two farmers named Doug Bauer and Dave Corley came forward claiming they had single-handedly started the whole phenomena. So they'd actually been inspired by the 1966 Tully sighting. So they set out to make their first saucer nest in, uh, 1978 using a plank of wood, a rope, and a baseball cap that was fitted with a loop of wire to help them walk in a straight line. Good God. That was all it took. They took credit for pretty much every crop circle made before 1987, um, and over 200 overall between, like, the beginning and when they finally Wait, so they're out. taking credit for all of them? They're taking credit for most of them. Like, b- right up to 1987. And then 
it's assumed that the thousand or other so crop circles are copycat pranks. And indeed, like they have all the markers of man-made hoaxes. Like most are con- concentrated primarily in southern England, where Bower and Corley were located. Like most are near roads; they're not showing up in the middle of nowhere. Though, granted, like if you put a field down, you need a road to get to it. But the idea is that this is where the hoaxers would have had access to the fields. They also became increasingly elaborate and like even like. I don't know how it works, but like reflecting mathematical equations or based off of mathematical equations, things like that. Ugh. So like it started out as like a circle and then it was seven circles in a very elaborate pattern and so on and so forth. But this indicates like the hoaxers are getting better at their craft. The creators are never seen probably because it's not that hard to sneak into a cornfield in the middle of the night and not be seen. You'd think you'd hear them like pushing down all of that corn though. Yeah, but you're not, like, unless you're out there by the field. Yeah, that's true. I've actually never been to a cornfield at night. Yeah. And, yeah, because fields just, you will have miles and miles and miles of fields if you're in farmland. It's not, like, right behind your house all the time. So, yeah, they're probably all I, I, I will take your word for, for that because that's how you were raised. <laughs> Literally. We grew up in just the middle of a big field of corn. <laughs> My house was made of corn. All right, Shoes were not- corn. <laughs> Everything is corn. <laughs> uh, so this is not one I had ever heard of, but I found it on the Museum of Hoax or Museum of Hoaxes website, and it's great. Uh, it's the Microfo- Microsoft acquisition hoax of 1994, and it's one of the earliest hoaxes of the internet age. This is the dweebiest sounding thing I've ever heard. <laughs> you'll no, you'll like this. It's very on brand. Uh, so this was a fake press release claiming that Microsoft had acquired the Catholic Church. So the Microsoft owns the Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, This began circulating online in early December of 1994, so, you know, just in time for Christmas. (laughs) I'm going to read some excerpts. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read some excerpts because it's pretty funny. With the acquisition, Pope John Paul II will become the senior vice president of the combined company's new religious software division, while Microsoft senior vice presidents Michael Maples and Stephen Ballmer will be invested in the College of Cardinals. Religious software division. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Through the Microsoft Network, the company's new online service, quote, we will make the sacraments available online for the first time. Oh, my God. (laughs) And revive the popular pre-counter-reformation practice of selling indulgences, said Gates. That was determined to be very illegal, was it not? (laughs) You can get communion, confess your sins, receive absolution, even reduce your time in purgatory, all without leaving your home. Do they, like, hmm, mail you the Eucharist? Emily, it's a fake press release. I know. I'm just thinking about logistics. <laughs> uh, so the last quote is, historically, the church has had a reputation as an aggressive competitor, leading crusades to pressure people to upgrade to the Catholicism <laughs> and entering into exclusive licensing agreements in various kingdoms, whereby all subjects were instilled with with Catholicism, whether or not they plan to use it. So we've just been dumb forever. It's yeah. never gotten better. So, yeah. So granted, given the experts, like this is obviously parody. Most people understood it as a joke, uh, but enough people believed it that Microsoft actually began getting calls. So these are either from people who thought it was that Microsoft had actually put out the release and responsible were responsible for the joke and were offended by it, <laughs> or those who thought the story were true and wanted more details. So imagine thinking a joke is not funny and then taking that and like calling the person who made the joke not specifically to you to tell them that you didn't like the joke i think the idea was that they had thought that microsoft as a funny had put out this fake press release and that it was sacrilegious in some way ugh ugh yeah uh, in the end microsoft eventually had to issue a formal oh denial as well as an apology for anyone who was offended by it why do they have to apologize <laughs> Because that's how the world works. Oh, my God. Uh, It is considered the first hoax to reach mass audience to the internet, and we still don't know who actually wrote it. (sighs) Okay, I've got one more, and it's a doozy. Oh, more than the Microsoft buying the Catholic Church? Yep. You're a fellow child of the 90s. Uh, Allegedly. Uh, Do you remember where you were when you first saw the alien autopsy special? Oh, shit. Um, I think I was at my grandma and grandpa's house. With my aunt. So I remember this vividly. I'm sure I watched it live uh, because this is like right in the middle of my X-Files phase. You had an X-Files phase? I had an X-Files phase. And looking back, why did my parents allow me to watch the X-Files when I was seven years old? Yeah, my parents didn't let me watch X-Files. Like, I still haven't finished it because I got a little too scared once. I 
I don't even know. This is the these are the same parents who uh, got mad at me for watching Friends when I was 15 because Friends was drunk. Friends was crossed the line. But sure, go ahead and watch the what X-Files. What could Chandler possibly have said? Look, Emily, they were all having sex and that just was no go. I don't know how to tell your parents this, but Mulder and Scully also having sex. <laughs> I don't think I ever got that far in the X-Files, but anyway. It was implied. <laughs> Alien Autopsy. Fact or fiction, question mark, was a TV special that aired on the Fox Network on August 28th, 1995. It was hosted by Jonathan Frakes of Star Trek fame and purported to show actual video documentation of an autopsy conducted on the body of an extraterrestrial recovered from the wreckage of the flying saucer that had crashed at Roswell. A lot of things going on. (sighs) The footage had been acquired, allegedly, by a British music and video producer called Ray Santilli, who claimed that he had paid $100,000 to buy it from a retired military cameraman. Okay. uh, Who had Um, been assigned to record it and then later stole a copy of the footage. So, granted, it's, you know, the now times, but I I live with a retired military cameraman. Uh, That doesn't happen. (laughs) They wouldn't just... They search your shit. I mean, obvious. I mean, granted, 1947... I guess, I guess. But, but, like, the tapes would have been, it would have been a film reel that he was trying to sneak out of Area 51. Very true. It's almost as if this is a big hoax. Well, <laughs> fine, uh, I guess. Sure. The footage itself is grainy. It's shot in black and white with, like, a shaky handheld camera. It follows three government surgeons in biohazard gear as they examine the body of the extraterrestrial, cut open its chest, and finally saw through the skull and remove its brain. Very grisly stuff. Uh, The special was immediately called out as an obvious hoax. (laughs) So physicians pointed out that the surgeons in the film were holding their instruments incorrectly, and thus probably not real surgeons. Uh, The film bore a bogus non-military code work, and special effects artists could tell that the body being dissected was obviously a lightweight rubber dummy. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, Uh, and everyone else just alive on the planet noted that the camera always went out of focus anytime it got anywhere near the body, which... Maybe it was just a shitty cameraman. No, they go to school for that. (laughs) Uh, Several enthusiasts and experts featured in the special later came forward to claim that their statements had been selectively edited to make them sound a lot more credulous than they actually were, which, of course. Ray Santilli denied that the footage was a hoax for years, and then in 2006, he did admit, finally, to a British journalist that the footage had been faked and shot in a London apartment. Not even American-made. I mean, come on. Jesus, we need to start shopping American (laughs) for our hoaxes. Uh, the alien dummy had been created by a sculptor and special effects creator, John Humphreys, who had worked on the Max Headroom TV show in uh, Doctor Who. He also claims to have portrayed one of the surgeons. Uh, <laughs> that same year, Humphreys recreated his work for a comedy film called, get this, Alien Autopsy, based uh-huh. on Santelli's story about his discovery of the autopsy footage. This film was executive produced by Ray Santelli. <laughs> oh, my God. It's got Bill Pullman in it. Looked it up on IMDb. It looks bad. Uh, so Santelli still exists, at least like publicly, that this was real or there really was footage of an alien autopsy. But the quality was so poor that, you know, he was just forced to recreate it. I'm sure. Which, yeah, my notes here. And that's with. definitely how you recreate sure, scientific Dan. video. Yeah. And those are some hoaxes. God damn it. Now I'm mad. I'm mad about all this and I just want to watch <laughs> X-Files. Is it still on Netflix? Yeah. Maybe. Netflix or... That's on something. Yeah, it's somewhere. I'm sure it has to be. Do you have a favorite hoax, Emily? (sighs) I mean, that Bigfoot video is pretty good. Yeah, it's a good Bigfoot video. I almost put that in here, but I just, I didn't want to talk about Bigfoot again. It's a monkey suit. It's a monkey suit. Also, X-Files is on Hulu. Oh, good to know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have like a favorite, favorite hoax. Like there's plenty of like Ripley stuff that probably isn't real. Almost definitely, but yes. I can't think of anything specifically. But thanks for bringing up those memories of the alien autopsy video. You're welcome. I really wanted to find it on YouTube, and it's not on YouTube. I was disappointed. How is that not on YouTube? Right? I don't know. I mean, you can search alien autopsy, and you will get results, but it's not the one. (laughs) We guarantee results. (laughs) Just not the ones you want. I mean, that's YouTube. That's the internet. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, that was, um, there was a lot, there was a lot in there. Yeah. Kind of mad you took crop circles from me. Sorry. I thought you knew. I didn't know it was just two dudes. Two dudes, but they inspired others. I think it's still really cool. Like, 
Go look at pictures of crop circles. They're awesome. Just because they're not made by UFOs doesn't mean they aren't cool. Well, no, it kind of loses its its shine when it's two British dudes just like smacking down <laughs> literally corn with the like night. a board and a rope. Yeah, yeah. I think what we learned mostly today is that people were very bored back in the day, yeah. and that boredom led them to believe some real dumb shit. Actually, no, I do have a favorite hoax. It is Jeff the mongoose. Oh yeah, Jeff is good. I love. I'm, the I'm sorry, story Jeff, of Jeff isn't real, guys. I I wish he was. The Amityville Haunting is also pretty good. Oh, yeah. Also, hoax. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> just, just just go to the Wikipedia list of hoaxes. You'll find a lot of stuff. And you'll be like, wait, what? Aw. That's not real. <laughs> Damn it. Jeez. Uh, All right. So we have one more episode after this and a mini. Or two minis? Two minis and, yeah. And then we're going to go on our holiday break. And when we come back, it will be our 100th episode. And please remember to send in... Uh, your facts or your recordings of you just saying the facts, um, which we will play in their entirety. Well, maybe not in their entire. Like, use your judgment. But um, send those to afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com with the uh, subject line 100th episode. Yes, please do. That'll be fun. It still feels weird that this is the 100th. Like, we're coming up on that. Yeah, you've been doing this a while. <laughs> I have. I have been doing this for a while. And uh, one whole presidency, even. Ugh. Well, no, it's good now. We're fine now. <laughs> Yeah, everything is perfect and fine and totally okay. Um, yeah, That's I mean, very heavy sarcasm if y'all can tell. Oh, for sure. Because uh, we were going to do the Salem Witch Trials again for our 100th episode. And with, we couldn't because Corona. Yeah, we were going to actually go to Salem and uh, be a little more in-depth about it. And I was going to giggle a little bit less about the name Dorcas Whore. <laughs> but we'll we'll get to that again. Um, I, you know, that's one I want to revisit because people seem to listen to that like an obscene amount. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's very popular. Um, anyway, so, uh. I don't know why I'm not in that one. (laughs) Well, it was before your time. Um, so yeah, we are on Instagram at Afternoonified, Twitter at Afternoonified, getafternoonified.com where you can donate, uh, buy merch. Um, there's merch. That's fun. I have completely lost my thread about how to end this episode. So I think I've covered everything. Like, like subscribe, review, all this of that. That sounds right. Yeah, sure. Yes. Uh, g- goodbye, I guess. It's that time of year, you guys. We're sorry. <laughs> you got to say the thing. Oh, goodbye. We love you. What up, So Below listeners? It's your boy Shane Hosey, and I want to tell you a little bit about my podcast, The Hosey Hustle. Every other week I sit down with a guest and we talk about product and service submissions from you, the listener. Terrible ideas, like cigarettes for dogs. And we'll sit there and we'll talk about how to make them ready for the big scary economy. Basically, we take bad ideas and we make them worse. So why don't you give us a listen? The Hosey Hustle, part of So Below Media. Now get back to the show you were originally listening to. You probably like it a lot. For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is as above, so below.